This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm trying something different. I'm not sure. I'm not sure you'll ever hear this. So this is kind of like speaking into the universe because I we may have to move the schedule around of our recordings of podcasts during the week. And so one of the consequences of that would be if this happens, I would record these things more often late Thursdays rather than first thing Friday mornings. Not definite yet, but since tomorrow I have a massively busy day and I got to write a G file and I got to do these other things, I figured I would I would test it out and see how I do at the end of the day rather than um, first thing in the morning. The problem is I, I'm a much more of a morning person than I'm a late in the day person. And so, um, and I took a nap. So uh, I don't know. My mental state is an undiscovered country is all I'm saying right now. Um, and it's just been a wildly crazy week. This morning we recorded the Dispatch podcast and we talked for a good bit about the debate, which was yesterday, my Wednesday. I'm going to say my Wednesday. I don't, it was your Wednesday too. I apologize. Um, we talked about the debate. We talked about the stuff at Harvard and Kevin McCarthy. I found the Kevin McCarthy thing. I mean, politically, it's the biggest news of the week. The Republican caucus is down to two seats. The majority is down to two seats or something like that. But I got nothing. I had nothing new <laughs> really to say about that. And I don't, I haven't picked up anything new since then. College president stuff, I find endlessly fascinating. I wrote a very long G-file, which is probably the best received thing I have written in months. And uh, we brought it out from behind the paywall, which still means you need to enter your email address to read it, but you don't have to be a subscriber to read it. So if we'll put it in the show notes. God, one of the weird things about it is that like, I then listened to the first half of the advisory opinions podcast, you know, with Sarah and that David guy. And we had not talked about the Harvard stuff at all. We not slacked about it to each other in any significant way. And yet it's just, it's kind of edifying how we're all basically on the exact same page about it. And then I was talking to Steve this morning before we recorded the Dispatch podcast. And, you know, before we started recording, he was just sort of like, you know, it's talking about the G file. He was like, you know, it's funny. The thing that got me more than anything else was the smirking. And that was the thing in my G file, which is that I, I can forgive and I can understand a lot of the stuff. I mean, really profoundly disagree with a lot of the stuff that those college presidents, it was Harvard, Penn, and MIT, uh, those three college presidents, I can, I can understand, I can tolerate, I will profoundly disagree with a lot of what they had to say. I think, you know, 
I will argue with them and all the rest. But the thing that I found really kind of rage inducing was their smirking. It's just kind of funny how that's what, I mean, I don't think it was like unique to the, you know, dispatch senior staff or anything like that, but it was just kind of funny how both sort of intellectually and emotionally, all four of us were on the exact same page about it. And I don't think, you know, again, I don't think we're alone in this. I think that this is a part of the reaction by a lot of people. You know, as Sarah kept saying, if you, whatever your position on genocide, probably best not to smirk while talking about it. And what all three college presidents, but or university presidents, whatever, the three presidents, particularly um, the McGill woman, what kind of united them was, first of all, a really kind of haughty, condescending tone and unanimity of position. It was like they'd all gotten briefed by the same lawyers and the same really crappy comms people, but also the same sort of exasperation and impatience with having to tell Congress how stupid they are. And look, I again, not a huge fan of Elise Stefanik. I think she has kind of beclowned herself. Um, one of the reasons I'm angry at her than I am at a lot of Republicans is I think she's smarter and better than the, the public persona she's taken on. But even if she were full, you know, Margie Taylor Greene, which she's not, you know, again, I hold her to a higher standard because I actually, fun fact, I actually... The only time I've mentioned this a few times, I went to Israel on this junket, and that's when I got the news about my brother being um, in this terrible accident and having, you know, basically it was a fatal accident. Um, she was on that trip, which I had completely forgotten um, until somebody reminded me a little while ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, that was her. And if you had told me that that very quiet, reserved, um, fairly shy young woman would then end up being the the playing the the rabble rouser Trumpist that she's become, I would never have believed it. Then again, there's a lot of stuff in the Trump era I wouldn't have believed back in whatever that was, 2010, 2011. So I get having contempt for Elise Stefanik, but like Elise Stefanik was on the right side of the issue. And these three, you know, premier, they're not even, they're not premier academics. They're premier administrators. And I think this is sort of an important point. Jeffrey Miller was making this point recently, um, most college administrators um, at that level, they are academics, but their careers aren't defined by, you know, sort of cutting edge research or um, scholarship. It's defined by working the bureaucracy and working the system. And that's, they're, these people were basically apparatchiks they struck a pose that made it seem like this was beneath their dignity. Like, you know, some aristocrat having to answer questions from a, from a blacksmith or something like that. And it was just the smirking that just, it set me on edge. So anyway, I don't want to repeat all the stuff we talked about on the dispatch podcast or anything like that, or repeat all the G file stuff. But I, you know, part of the argument I made, look, anti-Semitism is extremely old. It's taken many forms over the years in many different ways. But in this context, I think at least some of the anti-Semitism, not all, but some of the anti-Semitism is really just a symptom of the larger ideological worldview. And again, it can be autocatalytic and, you know, dialectic and, and reinforcing and all that kind of stuff, right? You know, you can take a position that reinforces another position and then that 
reinforces the first position and blah, 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 blah. Take the drink because you feel a failure, become a little more of a failure because you drink. But I really do think that, that some of this stuff is the detritus or the residue or the, how to put it, it's like, in the 1960s, it was a very hard version of this stuff. The Weather Underground, the Black Panthers, some really, you know, the, the more rabid SDS types of the new left. They believe their radicalism sincerely, and they, they went to violence with it. A lot of those people or the children of those people have worked their way up in Gramscian fashion through the institutions, and they just have a lot to lose to actually be violent revolutionaries now. But they still think in a lot of those categories. They still think in a lot of, um, they still def have these who are more political moral lodestars who are committed to radical, radical commitment, right? Radical action, the cult of the deed, that kind of thing. And I think that like that the settler colonialism stuff, the oppressed versus oppressor, the sort of Howard Zinn, um, you know, Herbert Marcuse, Paul DeMann, you know, uh, the Fukuyama, all that postmodern stuff, all that critical race stuff, it creates a certain argument that, you know, the present must be an, in, at, at war with the past. It needs to topple um, the, the, best, the best things about American culture, Western culture, that that's where, you know, the serious intellectual work is that's what speaking truth to power is you know as i put it in in suicide of the west the way one way to think about like the, sort of the howard zinn project where or the marcuse project you know which is that america itself is what marcuse said was radically evil one way to think about it is that um, how did I how did I do this? Oh, it's like Goldfinger from the James Bond movies, right? So Goldfinger had this wild plan where he wasn't he he was he had a lot of gold, right? But uh, everyone thought he wanted to rob Fort Knox. He didn't want to rob Fort Knox. His plan was to essentially blow up a dirty bomb inside of Fort Knox, which would irradiate the gold in there, so that it would be unusable for like 200 years or 150 years or something like that, which would in effect take that gold off of the gold market, making Goldfinger's existing gold all the more powerful or more all the more uh, valuable. I use this as a sort of uh, strained, forced metaphor about the way the sort of Howard Zinn types look back at American history and Western history is they want to take all of the all the good bits and irradiate them, make them things that you can't take pride in, can't uh, invoke as evidence in defense of the West or in defense of America to make them radioactive, right? So, and look, there were downsides to a lot of things, right? You know, the expansion westward was, was horrific for Native Americans. Slavery, which I've talked about a zillion times on here, it was a terrible thing. But they use these sorts of things to say these are the stories, right? That, that, that American history is a story of white Americans, particularly white male Americans being oppressors, doing terrible things to every, this whole coalition of the oppressed, this, this whole vast archipelago of, of, of victims, and that's the story of America. And anything that would go on the other scale to balance out that story is so radioactive and so untouchable that it cannot be part of the official narrative.
And I think that that's basically how a big chunk of the people who, I'm not saying a lot of individual, there are plenty of good individual scholars and academics in these schools, but the zeitgeist is built around that kind of worldview, that kind of narrative making. And it's subscribed to by, by a big chunk of the loudest and most obnoxious students and the most powerful administrators. And in that narrative, Israel's just a huge friggin' problem. And Jews are just a huge friggin' problem for reasons we've discussed, right? I mean, Jews, domestically, Jews are outliers for the whole oppression narrative because Jews who have as good a claim as any for oppression, particularly by white Western civilization, right? And I'm like, I mean, particularly, but you know, Notably, Jews have overcome, they've thrived, uh, they throw over the easy, cheap sort of causality that oppression yields to all the inequality, and that drives a lot of people nuts. And again, I think that this is going to increasingly be applied to Asian Americans. I, I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I am sure that there was a lot more scholarship about the discrimination and bigotry against Asians 20 years ago, <laughs> um, because now... Uh, the disproportionate performance and admissions and test scores and all these kinds of things about about Asians is becoming inconvenient for places like Harvard, as we saw at the Supreme Court. And so it seems like there's a there's a need to sort of cleave them off of the oppressed mothership in some way. I honestly believe, you know, there's this growing movement to uh, include caste discrimination in a whole bunch of sort of legal definitions of this, that, and the other thing on campuses and on state laws and whatnot. And I suspect that that this is one of the ways they're going to go after overachieving Indian Americans and, and other Asian Americans. Putting that all aside, the anti-Semitism part is really just a extension of application of a lot of that worldview, a lot of this sort of Zinian worldview. And um, actually, you know what I'll do? I'll just read a passage from the G-File. I said I didn't want to dwell on this, I know. But I wrote, the Howard Zinn and Herbert Marcuse narrative of America's eternal sin, Marcuse said America was radically evil, the Manichaeanism of dividing the world into oppressors and oppressed, critical race theory, the witlessness of whiteness studies, this whole bundle of ideological commitments was, by its own internal logic, bound to produce pathologies and sociopaths sociopathies like anti-Semitism. Give some of the Hamas supporters and apologists some credit. They're not all anti-Semites. Some sincerely believe that any act of quote-unquote resistance is self-justifying. The Franz Fanon, Franz Fanon of their imagination, as opposed to the real Fanon um, at the end of his life, defended violence and brutality against French people and colonizers generally. In his preface to Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote, When the peasant takes a gun in his hands, the old myths grow dim, and the prohibitions are one by one forgotten. The rebel's weapon is the proof of his humanity. For in the first days of the revolt, you must kill. To shoot down a European is to kill two birds with one stone, to destroy an oppressor and the man he oppresses at the same time. There remain a dead man and a free man. The survivor, for the first time, feels a national soil under his foot. And then I have this long expert from global fascism, 
describing some of the murderous stuff from Weather Undermen, Weather, Weather, Weather Underground people and stuff. And then I said, I don't see much difference between this and the actions of Hamas on, on t- October 7. Or to be more accurate, I don't see much difference between this and the revolutionary heroes Hamas's useful idiot apologists see in this gang of Islamic Islamist fanatics. They're not Jacobin freedom fighters. They're medieval goons who would laugh uproariously as they threw every member of Queers for Palestine from a roof. Nonetheless, some things have to be believed to be seen, which is why so many Western revolutionaries with faculty parking stickers talked of feeling exhilarated when they heard of the uprising or prison break. For them, Israel is an extension of white hegemony and imperialism, so resistance to all of that absolves all sins. And I link to some of that kind of stuff. And finally, last paragraph, it's a bit of a long one. In liberal fascism, I wrote that for the identitarian heirs to the new left, quote, the white male is the Jew of liberal fascism. I got a lot of grief for it at the time. But as I made clear, what I meant was that the anti-Jewish arguments of both Nazis and a great many Marxists was structurally analogous to the arguments against what people now cavalierly called white supremacy. Marx's essay on the Jewish question is all about the need to purge the Jewish spirit from society because Jews are the embodiment of capitalism and the advent of capitalism had Judaized Christian societies. Quote, the God of the Jews has been secularized and has become the God of the world. The bill of exchange is the real God of the Jew. His God is only an illusory bill of exchange. That's Marx talking there. Hitler saw the perfidious influence of Jewish contagion everywhere. Quote, conscience is a Jewish invention, he insisted. Later, he boasted that, quote, I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience. We will train young people before whom the whole world will tremble. I want young people capable of violence, imperious, relentless, cruel, unquote. And as an aside, if you watch these videos that memory puts out of men and women talking about how Palestinians need to make babies so that they can become terrorists and martyrs and all that kind of stuff, you can see some of the similarities here. Anyway, back to the text. While still a Nazi collaborator, Paul DeMand, the legendary postmodern theorist who taught at Yale and Cornell, wrote of the Jews, quote, their cerebralness, their capacity to assimilate doctrines while maintaining a cold detachment from them is one of the, quote, specific characteristics of the Jewish mind. Noel Ignatiev, Noel Ignatiev, one of the founders of whiteness studies, famously wrote that, quote, the key to solving the social problems of our age is to abolish the white race, unquote. Now, I don't think Ignatiev, um, a Harvard professor, by the way, wanted to slaughter whites Hamas style. His was a Marxist cleverness that simply took Marx's Jewish question thinking and applied it to whites. Anyway, I go on. I think that this stuff has been homogenized, institutionalized, routinized, reified, professionalized to the point where it is not a passionate ideological call for action in the United States of violent nature, but it, in part because 
the people who believe this garbage, they have something to lose, right? They won the long march through the institutions and they now have prestige and status in society and, you know, positions at places like Harvard that if they actually called for, you know, wiping out the white people would be professionally problematic for them. You know, uh, Ibram Kendi, you know, has made millions and millions of dollars offering a sort of bureaucratic version of a lot of this 1960s New Left stuff. As I pointed out in the piece, you know, he, you know, he got this big documentary for Netflix, this big Netflix special. And at the premiere, he got a round of applause for saying, whiteness prevents white people from connecting to humanity. That is like the way whiteness is used by these academics, by these ideologues, is really similar to the way Jewishness was used in the 1930s and 40s by Nazis and also in, in the and earlier by Marxists. It is this otherization, right? It's the dehumanization of a whole category of people. And what I've been writing about a lot is that one of the problems with this, first of all, it's bad on the merits. Anytime you create a vast category of human beings for the purpose of delegitimizing and, and dehumanizing, where you, you turn them into these sort of abstract things that essentially commodify a race or a gender or whatever, and just say they're all the same, they're interchangeable, and that their ideas are all bad faith, that's bad in its own right. What I find personally repugnant and outrageous and suicidal in a civilizational sense is taking things like free speech, due process, bourgeois family life, right? You know, the idea of the two-parent family or the success sequence or working hard in school or meritocracy, all of these sort of ideas, concepts, cultural phenomenon that basically define what we mean by a generally productive good life in economically advanced democratic countries by saying, oh yeah, that's all just white stuff. I find it so grotesque. And I know I'm a broken record on this, but you know what's really good for white people? The two-parent family and the su success sequence of educating your kids, that your kids get as much education as they get at least a high school or college degree before they get married and they get married before they have kids. That's really good for white kids. You know who else it's really good for? Black kids and Asian kids and Native American kids and every other variety of or flavor of human being in any, any Benetton ad ever. To sort of create a cultural barrier between that kind of stuff and non-white people is so morally irresponsible, so counterproductive, so self-indulgent, in part because I've been thinking about all this conservatism stuff. I've been reading a lot of these, you know, anti-liberalism people on the left and the right at the fringes, depending on who you're talking about. And there are a lot more of them who talk this way on the left than there are on the right. But the amazing thing, the horseshoe theory of, of some of this is so amazing because the most racist people out there are the, uh, on the right are the ones who basically believe this stuff, the traditional institutions that made America great only work because they were full of white people or white Christian people. The far more numerous and more sophisticated people who make those kinds of arguments on the far left say the same thing 
they just claim that the success of those institutions was simply the product of, you know, exploitation of, of a, it's a sort of a racially tinged labor theory of value BS argument. But they sort of share the same view is that these things are for white people and that non-white people should make no effort to becoming part of these institutions. And anyway, so like if, if that's the intellectual ideological milieu that you come from, and it doesn't have to be that you subscribe to all of it, but just that you, you privilege it. You think it is sophisticated and interesting and important and that the people you care about it think it's sophisticated and interesting and important and a bunch of idiotic foundations fund and support this kind of thinking. And you've got this vast apparatus of DEI commissars um, and apparatchiks who enforce and get paid um, uh, because of these ideas. Uh, that's a kind of, it's like, it's, it's like the perfect kind of icky, swampy kind of environment to nurture something like anti-Semitism. And so some of the anti-Semitism comes from anti-Semites who are just looking for an opportunity. Some of the anti-Semitism comes from immigrant kids or the children of immigrants from places like the Middle East, and they're bringing their parents' views, particularly if they're Palestinian. A lot of them were sort of raised to be have Jews be dehumanized. If you look at what the schools and Palestinian territories teach, it's just it's it's in the air, it's in the water. I'm not saying that Palestinians are congenitally anti-Semitic. I think they're taught to be anti-Semitic um, and to be clearly, obviously, anti-Zionist. And and again, this is not to say that there aren't good criticisms of Israel and there aren't reasons for various Palestinians to be, you know, pissed off at Israel, or I would argue, you know, at, at their own leaders or whatever. That's, that's all beside the point. The thing is, is that because anti-Semitism is so much more popular in Arab and Muslim countries, and not just, you know, in the Middle East, but throughout the world, and increasingly also in, you know, in China, the, the sort of guilt-written white administrators who believe this whole, you know, worldview, they have this condescending sort of view that says, well, you know, anti-Semitism and hatred of Israel in particular, that's an authentic part of these kids' culture, and we need to be respectful of that. I have contempt for all of that. Um, I don't think you need to be respectful of it. You should be respectful of the kids and their intelligence and, and be careful about how you work through some of this stuff. But I don't care that there's a deep cultural affinity for Jew hating. You can't act on it in a liberal institution. And so I think that's part of what they're, they're catering to. But part of it is just because Israel's low-hanging fruit, right? It's that Jews are culturally vulnerable in a way that mainstream waspy white people aren't or Catholics or whatever. And it's partly just a strength in numbers kind of thing. There are few enough Jews that they're easy enough to demonize. Israel is small enough and it's just one country amidst a lot of other countries that it's the, you know, it's, as I put it, it's the, it's the lowest hanging fruit in what is sort of a, a project of a long-term harvest. And I think that that explains part of it too. And what drives me crazy about these, these college administrators, and I won't get into all the free speech stuff in any detail, but it's, they're just lying. They're pretending that, you know, the, the, they probably did more defense of classical liberal free speech um, rules, First Amendment rules, in defense of people shouting about 
Jewish genocide or intifada or whatever than they ever did under any other circumstances because they don't like the traditional free speech, First Amendment jurisprudence or rules most of the time because those get in the way of them being able to police speech, which they do constantly. And they police speech not just by discouraging some forms of speech, but by celebrating and promoting and privileging other kinds of speech. These are social engineering laboratories. And the, the anti-Semitism stuff just messes up their carefully cultivated pose. And so they fall back on the stuff, on the arguments, partly because of the lawyers, but partly because it sounds like they're taking a defensible position, but they're not. They're lying. And go listen to David and Sarah about all that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so people know I've been friends with Peter Beinart for a very long time. Peter had this tweet where he says he was responding to this guy, Daniel Goldman. Uh, we're saying there's nothing contextual. Daniel Goldman tweeted, there's nothing contextual about calls for all Jews to be killed. Jewish students around the country are afraid. If colleges refuse to protect Jewish students, from generalized bullying and harassment, then the universities either need a new code of conduct or a new presence. I agree with all that. And then Peter says, I know some Jewish kids feel threatened by quote unquote intifada, which references uprisings that have been involved, that have involved anti-Jewish violence. But if we ban the phrase, what do we say to Palestinian students who feel threatened by the Israeli flag, emblem of a state that is killing their relatives? I get the point. It's a good-ish debating point. 
But I think this sort of gets at my frustration with the whole talk about free speech stuff. I'm pro-free speech, right? I'm not as pro-free speech as like David is and all that. Just because I can just think of more exceptions to the rule that I would be comfortable with than, than David can. I find David and, you know, and Greg Lukianoff and all of those guys, I think Fire does great work. And I'm glad that they're out there doing what they do, even if, if I might disagree with them at the margins in this instance or that. But my problem with the free speech argument in general, is it just leaves a lot of stuff out of the equation that I think should be involved in a decent, morally serious, confident civilization or institution. And, you know, so Peter's point about how, you know, intifada could bother some Jewish kids, this is all abstracted out, right? This is all just sort of a hypothetical, as he's putting it, and a way a lot of other people are framing this stuff. When the context here is that on October 7th, a bunch of barbaric rapists and murderers and torturers ended a ceasefire with Israel. That was really only a one-way ceasefire because they were still lobbing rockets into Israel and Israel was just trying to knock them out of the sky without doing anything about it. But they ended the ceasefire, this, you know, this holy of holies, a ceasefire, and they invaded and they killed a bunch of people at a concert, many of whom were like serious two-state solution peacenik, left-wing Israelis. They broke into people's homes, murdered parents in front of their kids, kids in front of their parents. They raped people. They mutilated people. They killed a ki- these, the father of two kids and then sat down at their dinner table while these little kids are crying about it. They did horrifically indefensible, immoral, evil things. While that was still being processed, before Israelis launched any kind of military action save to stop the murdering that was still taking place on October 7th and I guess going into the morning of October 8th. Before there was there was any military action against Hamas, the response from countless pinhead professors, the government of Qatar, Code Pink types, Ali Velshi and uh, Mehdi Hassan types, Students for Justice in Palestine types, vast, vast coalition of Israel haters and anti-Semites and idiots, right? And not necessarily all three. They all started attacking Israel rhetorically, blaming Israel entirely for this, saying that we need a ceasefire now before there was really any firing to speak of, saying that Israel was to blame and go back and you can find it all over the place. Lots of people were saying that Israel was to blame for all the lives lost on 10-7. They were saying this while they were still, still trying to repel terrorists, still pulling bodies out of the rubble or out of the ashes or out of the abattoirs. When they were still trying to figure out who was kidnapped and who was just murdered, they were saying Israel was, was responsible for all of this. And so it's one thing to say intifada is a mean word, which I don't think it's necessarily a mean word. It's like, you know, blitzkrieg was a bad thing, you know, but you got to describe what the blitzkrieg was. So you grow the blitzkrieg. You can describe as an analytical descriptive thing. You can talk about intifada, whatever. Calling for an intifada is a different thing. That's a verb, right? That's an action. That's different than the actual flag of a recognized state, which has at its heart the symbol of Judaism, qua Judaism, right? But more to the point, 
calling for global intifada, calling for glory, you know, declaring glory to the martyr, martyrs, beaming that on the sides of campus buildings, never mind hounding student Jewish students so they have to hide. That's not that's a that's a context that has nothing to do with free speech questions. It's just it's sort of like I mean, this is a grotesque analogy, but I'm just trying to convey the point, right? It is one thing if you have a friend who's, you know, a high school friend whose parents are a huge pain in the ass and you're, and let's just say, I don't know, that your friend's mom won't let you go out on Saturday night to this big party that you've been planning on going to with all your friends. And you say to him, couldn't you just kill your mother? Right. Um, that's different than saying it when someone's something like that, when their mother has just been killed, right? To invoke all of this language, to embrace all of this language, hours, long before people have been buried, hours after October 7th, is the kind of thing that only assholes would do, right? It is just a dickish horrible thing to do in just a, as a, on a human level on a college campus. It's one thing that in a classroom or even at a protest to call for this, that, or the other thing, or to talk about something in some way, it is another thing to say, Hey, you know, maybe we should cool it for a little bit until passions die down. Or, you know, maybe this is, just isn't the time when people are still trying to find out if their relatives have been raped and murdered. And this is the thing, you know, I, I, I've been bringing up a bunch. Dan Senor quoted me a bunch about this because it's the thing that offended me the most about the early days after 10-7 was the degree to which so many people on the left and the global Palestinian solidarity, this, that, or the other thing, their immediate reaction was to get angry at Jews for overreacting to Jews being slaughtered, right? That was the thing that offended them. That's what they wanted the debate to be about, was why are you making such a big deal out of this? Why do you take offense at this? That's a kind of gaslighting that I have a huge problem with. But just getting back to this, 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 this basic point, I know I'm rambling and I, I really should pull out of this. The basic point is, is that if you ran a college campus like I would run, I don't know, the dispatch, we are a free and open place where we allow people to float ideas and talk about whatever and all that kind of thing. But if somebody's family had just been raped and murdered, there are some kinds of conversations that I would say, I'd pull, you know, my staffer over, my friend over, my colleague over and say, hey, you know, this is probably a conversation that can wait for another day, Right. There's just a certain amount of sort of menchness that is lost in these debates. A certain amount of paternalism in the, in the positive sense that is lost in these debates. I think old-fashioned no notions of decency, honor codes, codes of conduct, gentlemanliness, ladylikeness. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of baggage to some of those things that's, you know, that, that needs to be updated with the times. But there's also something lost when we just discard all of that stuff. And the way so many of the left, so many of these faculty members, the way they responded to 10-7 was dishonorable. It was, it was part of this thing I keep talking about week after week and writing about over and over again, about this desire to talk about current events with real human beings 
as if they are all just characters in a narrative of your choosing, that they are abstractions, and I you have labeled them the bad people or the bad the villains. And so therefore you can talk about them as if they don't actually have human agency and the people who behave badly, you can forgive it because they don't really have agency either because you are the main character in your, in your drama and everyone is behaving the way that you want them to as characters in your play. I think that's really depraved. All right, so some other stuff. I think I'm going to write about tomorrow. I hate, this is one of, this is one of my main, I didn't mean to tell Adam about this. Like This is one of my main objections to doing these things the day before is I feel like I've taken the spontaneity out of the G file or what I want to write about if I talk about what I want to write about, but I don't know what, what I want to write about. But one of the things that I've been wanting to discuss is um, this whole dictator thing, which we also talked about on the Morning Dispatch. I, I don't mean like the whole Atlantic Symposium and the New York Times and the Washington Post stuff. Um, uh, I just, I've already talked about that a good deal. I'm very sympathetic to the Atlantic arguments, or at least most of them. I had this great conversation with Brett Devereaux, which won't air until next week, where we get into some of this, so I don't want to get into the spoilers about that. I have two points. One is, just on the sheer punditry of it, I don't know that the people who are talking this way about how Trump is going to be a dictator and democracy is going to be over and all that kind of stuff, I don't think they're accomplishing what they want to accomplish. I'm not saying it's all fan fiction. I mean, there is a component of that sort of fan fiction thing. I mean, sort of like with the Russia collusion stuff. Although, again, I think there was more merit to some of that narrative than, you know, the one I'm supposed to on the right. But certainly the hard, intense version of the Trump-Russia collusion thing, the media got way out over its skis. Adam Schiff got way out over his skis on all of that kind of stuff. The idea that somehow this is going to be the silver bullet that prevents Trump from getting the nomination or winning the presidency, I just think it's just bad strategy, right? Let's just assume, let's put aside whether that stuff is 100% accurate, 80% accurate, 70% accurate, 20% accurate, right? I, I, I would put it, I haven't read every single entry, I haven't, I don't want to subscribe to stuff I haven't gotten up to speed on, but as a general proposition, the threat to democracy, the threat that he might be a dictator or that people around him would push him down a path that was hard to distinguish from being a dictator, um, like using the Insurrection Act for this, that, or the other thing, I put that above 50%, but not that much above 50%. I think our institutions are a little stronger than a lot of these people think. I think the degree to which a lot of Republicans basically see Trump as a as a as a celebrity figure that they don't really process a lot of his BS the way I completely forgive liberals for thinking Republicans process his BS. I mean, I've said that, I think I've made this point on here before, but like these debates are instructive. The presidential debates on the GOP side is that when Trump isn't there, with the exception of Vivek Ramaswamy, who. I cannot begin to tell you how much contempt I have for, but we'll get to that, I guess. This is a pretty Reaganite party still, right? I mean, the, the Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and, and Chris Christie, the last three people up there, or even if you want to go back to the earlier debates with Doug Burgum and Tim Scott and, and whoever else was still, and Mike Pence, they are all 
pretty much Reaganites. You know, there are some philosophical differences to be sure. And DeSantis is like the, I would argue, the closest, out, farthest out to Trumpism. Though I think some of that is an act. You know, DeSantis's ads are all about freedom and he's all about limited government and, and he's heavier into the culture war stuff than some of the others. But for the most part, I, I really, I find the arguments between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis exhaustingly stupid because basically they're all campaigning on basically the same promises, tough on China, stand up to the woke this and, you know, and, and, and defend Israel that and uh, more energy production. And their responses to each other aren't like, well, actually your position is worse than my position. It's that your position is the same as my position, but I think you're lying and I'm telling the truth. Um, and that's just, it's, it's boring. They're campaigning as basically on basically the same issues with the same positions. They're just saying, if you look at Nikki's record because she did this, that doesn't mean, that means she doesn't really believe what she's saying. And Nikki responds by saying, if you read what, if you look what DeSantis did, it means he doesn't really believe what he's saying. And like, okay, like that's interesting, but particularly in the post Trump or in the, uh, or the, the, the Trumpian era, the idea that somehow um, this is supposed to be a super, you know, like that, that, that people really care whether or not these politicians believe this stuff. Trump doesn't believe in anything really, except, you know, a couple things like the immigration stuff and, and punching his enemies and a couple other things. Trump changes positions on all sorts of things all the time, sometimes in the same paragraph, sometimes in the same breath. I find it all kind of silly. And I also think that if you, if, if a normal Republican were to talk the way Trump does about almost any of this stuff, any of the scary things that Trump says, it would destroy them, right? It would, or certainly it would create a ceiling um, of their support that they could not get past. Vivek Ramaswamy tries to do this stuff and it's not working. The more DeSantis does this stuff, the worse he's done in the polls. And DeSantis, and again, DeSantis doesn't say anything as remotely stupid and, and offensive as what Trump says. But, you know, his best day was before he announced. So anyway, I, I think that the idea that the entire Republican Party or the entire Republican electorate are going to be the loyal shock troops of Donald Trump, no matter what he does, if he decides to actually become Durfeur or something, I just think that's overblown and not actually um, borne out by the, by the, the observable fact. Doesn't mean... A Trump presidency wouldn't be disastrous. It doesn't mean that he wouldn't surround himself with some of the worst, most irresponsible, grossest people in American politics who would seize opportunities to behave in what they think is a Trumpian way, right? So I'm not saying it wouldn't be bad. I'm just saying it's not necessarily the uh, man in the high castle scenario that is being spun up by, let's face it, writers who have audiences who want to be spun up this way. And again, I'm not accusing anyone of bad faith. I just think there's a big bubble when it comes to this stuff. But the thing I actually want to talk about is when he says in this interview, right? So like, first of all, uh, one of my favorite genres of journalism, and I'm using the word broadly to include infotainment. Um, one of my favorite things in sort of TV journalism is when you have a, partisan, ideologically committed host who's doing an interview 
and they are desperately trying to help the person they're interviewing not say something stupid, right? And um, I've used the example because it's a minor one, but I loved it at the time. I wish I had, um, I think it was Stephanie Rule, was that who it was? It was one of the, you know, sort of definitely left-wing anchors of MSNBC. And I think Stephanie Rules is less left-wing than a lot of MSNBC types. But anyway, it was during the beginning of the end of the whole defund the police thing. It was around the time Clyburn came out and said, hey, this is not actually what we believe. And Pelosi started saying this stuff, right? And it was in part because it was becoming unavoidably obvious that no one wanted to actually defund the police. No, no serious group of voters wanted to defund the police. And you've heard me on this a million times, but like there was never a poll that had actually abolishing the police as a popular position. It wasn't even like, I mean, forget majority or plurality. It wasn't even really a significant slice of the electorate wanted that. Yes, there were a lot of people who wanted to reform the police. Um, there were a lot of people who said, and there weren't a lot of, there, there were a few people, a significant number of people, but still a, a mi significant minority who said they wanted fewer police in their neighborhood. But the vast majority of people, vast majority of Americans wanted either the same amount or more police. And even for the people who wanted fewer police, there's just a huge, huge difference between fewer and zero. And anyway, it was blowing up on Democrats all over the place, particularly in the context of the rise of the spike in crime. And so on MSNBC, it's Stephanie Rule, and she's interviewing some guy, you know, some Chico State professor of criminology or prison industrial complex studies or something like that. She trotted out the, the new talking point, which was, now we should remind viewers when we say defund the police, we don't actually mean abolish the police or remove all funding for police. What we're talking about is reprioritizing community support, social work, mental health things that we're talking about, taking some of these uh, resources that we give to police and moving them towards prevention and, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And she's trying to make this argument. And this guy says, no. Actually, we mean getting rid of the police. That's what defund the police means. It means abolishing the police. There was even a New York Times headline on the op-ed page back then that said, the head of it was, yes, we actually mean abolish the police. And I just love it when interviewers are trying to help fix the problems that their interviewees are um, creating for Democrats or for the left or for whoever, and they just won't play along. I just think it's hilarious. And so Hannity... This is at least the second time. I feel like there are more, but the only other one I can remember was, you know, like a year ago when the Mar-a-Lago classified document stuff was all over the place. Hannity in an interview says to Trump something like, now, of course, you would never, never mishandle or share classified information that hadn't been properly vetted and declassified, would you? And Trump was like, well, no. Well, unless I wanted to. If I, if I could, I totally could. If I wanted to, I could do whatever I want, you know. And, you know, Andy was just sort of, you know, in the Jerry Maguire, help me help you kind of mode. He was like, look, I'm trying to be your serviceable hack here. Meet me halfway. And that's what I love about the dictator comment where 
Hannity is trying desperately to do what his campaign wants everyone to do. Apparently, the camp, the Trump campaign has asked a whole bunch of Republican congressmen to come out of the woodwork and and poo-poo this idea that Trump would be a dictator, um, despite the fact that a lot of the things people in Trump's orbit have been saying have been the opposite. And so you have this thing in this interview where Hannity's like, now surely you would, there would be nothing dictatorial. You would never be a dictator in any way. <laughs> and Trump just says, first of all, he says, watch, I'm going to piss off Hannity or I'll watch this is going to drive you crazy. And he says, except on day one. Under no circumstances, you are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. But he says day one that's about that's not, immigration and oil drilling. And so, so first of all, on the comms part of it, I just think it's hilarious that, that Trump refuses to um, play along with this. And of course, everybody sets their head on fire, and it is outrageous that a former president, never mind the leading candidate to be president, would even concede the premise in any way that he would be a dictator. But the funny thing is, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm channeling Charlie Cook here, but I've been writing for years now about the lawlessness of executive orders. We don't need to get into all the details of that. Biden, I think, is just about to launch another one about student debt. But um, I've also been writing for years about this tendency in both parties, more pronounced in the Democratic primaries than in the Republican primaries. But we saw it in the 2000 primaries with the Democrats, and we've seen it in primaries before. I've been writing about this for a long time. There's this weird thing where politicians run for president as if we have a parliamentary system. And so they'll say, on day one of my administration, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get the guns. I'm going to get rid of fossil fuels. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, right? Like, even under the regime, which I think is lawless and unconstitutional, of excessive use of executive orders, abusive use of executive orders, half the time the things that these people say they're going to do on day one impossible to do without the buy-in or support of Congress. It's just not the way our system works. Yes, Trump was saying it in a boobish, thuggish, kind of self-indulgent way. But when he says, you know, on day one, we're going to drill for oil, and day one, we're going to do something about the border or whatever, that's very similar to the garbage that Elizabeth Warren said when she was campaigning, that Bernie Sanders, that Kamala Harris said, this whole day one, I'm going to do all of these things that I could only do if I lived in a parliamentary system or if I were king. This is deeply rooted in contemporary American politics. And I just sort of think it's what I kind of like about Trump saying it this way is that it illuminates the position that I hold about all politicians who do this in such a way that it allows for some people on the left to say, oh, wait, that would be bad. Um, so anyway, I'm thinking about writing about that. We'll see. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. 
It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the Best Sellers Body Care Set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. So I thought the moderators did a pretty good job. I thought Eliana was great. You know, I mean, I thought they're all good. I don't. I haven't seen any numbers about who was watching. I think it was a huge night for News Nation. I think, with the exception of Ramaswamy, you could you could make an argument on the merits that each and every one of the other three won the night. Right? Nikki had our, I think, our worst debate, but um, it wasn't that bad. And one of the reasons that she had a rough time was that she was clearly the front runner in everybody's eyes. And so she was the target of everybody, um, which is a actually a good thing for her. DeSantis had his best performance and got a lot of the sort of substance of where he comes from across. He needed to. And I suspect that some of his answers, particularly on the transgender stuff, will, will help him in Iowa. And Christie dominated the stage. He was the debater that people expected him to be from the beginning. So all three of them had good debate performances. I think, and this is a point I made on on the Dispatch podcast, but I don't think that the um, the attacks from Vivek and even DeSantis on Nikki were all that. I thought Vivek's attacks were grotesque and indefensible and stupid. And again, I have searing contempt for Vivek Ramaswamy. I just think he is almost better example of the weakness of the political parties insofar as a serious Republican party would not let him run. Just sorry, yeah, no, you're not going to get credentialed for the debates. We're not going to decide this by some sort of, you know, American idol system, because I think he's a retrograde moron, a highly articulate retrograde moron um, who makes stuff up. A friend of mine once said about somebody that so-and-so reads like a sophomore. And I always like that phrase because it captures this thing that some young people, that young people have that Glenn Beck had a problem with this, to be sure, that if they didn't know something and they read it, this is what, how college sophomores often of a certain type read, they don't know something, they learn something, they think, if I didn't know this, no one else must have known this. And so therefore, this is really, really amazing. And in reality, lots of people knew the thing that you just didn't know, and you're making it too big a deal about it because you have an inflated sense of your own knowledge and understanding of the world. Vivek has this all over the place. And when you add in the profound dishonesty, and I mean deliberate dishonesty, not just sort of making stuff up because his mouth is moving and he's got to fill it in, but I think it's premeditated dishonesty combined with this sort of sophomoric arrogance. I just, I, I cannot stand the guy. But okay, yeah, so just to, to finish up on Vivek, I know I, I keep getting distracted. And one of the things I resent about him is... I know I'm playing into his hands by talking about him because that's the thing he only cares about is being talked about. But I have this, you know, I have this theory. It's not just about Vivek. It's about Tucker Carlson too. You know, Tucker's 
was advertising some, someone put a thing in Slack about how he's going to have some special to explain how Alex Jones predicted 9-11 and, you know, what did he know and why did everyone come after him because of it and more conspiracy garbage. And, you know, the week before he was doing a big thing about how everybody knows the federal government has known about UFOs for 80 years. The only question is why have they kept it secret? Vivek on Wednesday night did, um, January 6th was an inside job. Great replacement theory is part of the democratic platform. And there's some other tinfoil hat things. I think there are a bunch of people who have figured out that the, and I'm not trying to be too pompous or elitist or, or, or snobbish about this, but one of the things that Roger Stone realized and consulted Trump on in 2015 and 2016 was that there was this vast untapped constituency that was very low propensity to vote. And it was basically virtually every one of my close friends in high school loved professional wrestling. I was kind of into it, but not that much. I know lots of people who love professional wrestling. There are lots of people who know that professional ref who recognize professional wrestling for what it is. I'm not trying to disparage anybody who believes in professional, who, who likes, you know, professional wrestling or looks back with fondness at Hulk Hogan and, and Andre the Giant and all that, which I do. But what Stone and those guys realized was there was this big untapped constituency of mostly white, mostly male people who fell into sort of the wrestling fan, Alex Jones fan, which, you know, those Venn diagrams overlap, alt-right, incels, weightlifting bros. I mean, again, I, I don't think, I'm not trying to say this is all one group. I'm saying it's a bunch of different, it's a constellation of groups where there is some overlap. And one of the things they realized was that if you could sort of incept yourself into the conversation at that level of, at, the, at those strata of the culture, you had a chance of activating them as voters, which historically was just very, very, very hard. And there's similar strata, you know, in the Democratic side. One of the main reasons why, other than believing it, you know, in a, in a wrong but sincere level, that a lot of Democrats go to 11 on the whole Jim Crow, voter suppression, racist stuff, you're, you're trying to keep you down, is that's a way to activate low propensity black voters to vote, right? The... Claims of voter suppression are, uh, are, are a way to turn out vote. You know, Barack Obama spent four years campaigning, having his sort of shadow uh, version of the Democratic Party. You know, he never unraveled his campaign. And in, 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 after 2008, they kept going to the black barbershops and all that kind of stuff to maintain a high level of support from low propensity black voters. Nothing evil about it, nothing wrong about it. I'm just trying to illustrate the point that this is, it's often about how much you can turn up the gain of your low propensity voters that are the margins, that provide the margins between defeat and victory. And this big untapped part of the white, non-college educated working class had been largely outside the coalition of the Republican Party, except during moments of, you know, extreme, you know, 
patriotic fervor or whatever, but they were just very hard to mobilize as voters. And Trump, because he'd been a celebrity, he, you know, he had all this kayfabe with um, Vince McMahon at pro wrestling. Um, he had done things like, you know, he was a big Howard Stern guy. He was a big um, Alex Jones guy. They figured out how to sort of switch on a big chunk of these kinds of people in part by enticing them with conspiracy BS uh, you know, Alex Jones type stuff, Sandy Hook was a false flag operation, all that kind of thing. And I think part of the reason our politics are so weird and why Twitter spaces, are, social media spaces are so intense and ugly is that a lot of these people have gotten the political bug and they are following politics like it's a conspiracy theory. They're following politics like it's fan fiction. This has opened up an effect, a lucrative new market for people who do politics stuff. It's it's the Candace Owens space. It's increasingly the Charlie Kirk space, as best I can tell. Benny Johnson, who is, let's, let's just say, is not a leading um, intellectual. There are a bunch of these people who have realized that, that the only way you can keep this audience away from being much more engaged with wrestling or video games or a dozen other harmless things is by constantly turning up the the drama about politics about saying that you know politics is this existential thing that it's this flight 93 thing that there are conspiracies everywhere you look and i think that tucker is tapping into that market as well because he is proven unable incapable of stealing away the heart and soul of the fox audience, which are older, more committed. They leave Fox on all day long, sometimes because the nurse won't come in and change the channel. Uh, and so it's cultivate. there's an effort going on to cultivate and monetize this other audience whose relationship to politics isn't about policy. It isn't about, you know, incremental progress for, you know, Republican politicians or conservative policies or anything like that. It's about the drama. It's about the excitement. It's about the, the kayfabe, which is, you know, this term from pro wrestling that is sort of quasi realism thing that maintains this tension between fakery and a, an actual happening. You know, that sort of Q would QAnon 4.0 kind of universe is a big part of Trump's coalition. When So when Vivek gets up there and starts talking about this crazy stuff, I think that's what he's trying to tap into. He's trying to have a dedicated following of people that he can monetize going forward, that he can use as the feedstock for future campaigns and, and to stay part of the conversation. The only other defense of him is he actually believes this crap. I don't believe he does. I think he is just a completely dishonest human being. And if he could find the grift or the incentive or the advantage in debunking all these conspiracies, he would. But that makes him, in some ways, so much more evil and cynical. Because, look, I watched the Dana Bash interview. I was on Inside Politics today. They We had to talk about it. Where Dana Bash asked Ramaswamy about invoking the great replacement theory, right? You know, and Vivek had said on stage, what was it? That the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform. And then he went on to say that 2020 election was in fact stolen by big tech, which I just want to say about this stolen by big tech thing. Talk about moving the goalposts because that was the argument that people settled on 
after the initial wave of conspiracy theories had nothing to do with big tech, right? So, like, it's just worth keeping in mind that they invented the idea that the election was stolen. And what was it that, that Giuliani said? is like, we're good on the theory. We just need to find the facts. They started from the premise that the election was stolen, and then they just grabbed whatever claims they could that were near to hand that could get them through the day. And they've settled on the bogeyosity, the bogusness of big tech stealing it. And anyway, and Vivek asserts that as fact. But it's this great replacement thing that I think is the most poisonous. Look, I had Rui Teixeira on here to talk about his book. I think that I wrote about this not too long ago. I've written about this in the past. I think that there's a reason that one of the reasons I, th I think Roy Desher and John Judas in their new book are absolutely right that their emerging democratic majority book from 2002 was overinterpreted, overread, misread, and a bunch of people on the left because it, it conformed with this ideological blob I was describing in the first, you know, 40 minutes of this overly long podcast. It conformed with this view that sort of white people are bad. They're going away, yay, and they're going to be replaced by this, you know, beautiful mosaic of non-white people. And non-white people are, by virtue of their non-whiteness, progressive, and so Democrats are going to win no matter what. So let's swing for the fences and do all sorts of stuff we want to do anyway, but now we know since we're going to win the lottery next week, it doesn't matter how much we spend, right? That was sort of thinking they had. And one of the things that fit into that was immigration. I don't think it was explicitly a importing voters kind of thing, though I'm also confident that that was one of the factors that went into a lot of liberals and Democrats thinking. But it was also because, again, this ideological blob I was describing earlier, these non-white people who are coming here, we owed it to them to let them come here. We owed it to them to let them, you know, uh, get some sort of reparation, compensation for all the sins of imperialism. That was part of the ideological cocktail too. I don't know if it was 1%, 10%, or 25% or whatever, but it was in the mix. And also just this whole idea of, well, since the, mo the people who most want to stop the tide of immigration of largely or disproportionately non-white people are white people, it must be because they're motivated by racism and so therefore it's bad. So it was a complicated thing that explains some people's positions and not other people's positions. There's also just an honorable liberal tradition in the, an honorable American tradition of being pro-immigration. And I've been arguing for 20 years that conservatives have completely botched getting on the wrong side of the immigration narrative. And we can talk about that more a zillion other times. But this idea that we're going to get more voters was part of the, the mix. And because there was the straight line projection that, yeah, sure, some Cubans might disproportionately vote Republican, but the vast majority of Hispanics, the vast majority of immigrants from Africa or from the Caribbean or whatever, they're going to be part of our coalition. Indians vote with us. So this is great, right? And there's no political downside to it because we are going to be this majority coalition because we're going to be full of these non-white people. And of course, one of the problems that they had was that because of the ideological blob thinking, they turned their backs on the white working class, who which were the most important, numerically, the most important part of their coalition. And the white working class has steadily moved into the Republican Party. Okay, so that's as close as I will ever get to anything 
even smelling like replacement theory. And I wouldn't call it replacement theory. The only reason why I bring this up in this, in this order is that I do think parts of the left, particularly the crazy ideological ivory tower Zinian left, right? They deserve some share of blame for the reaction they elicited from the right. Because the one group that really took them seriously were a bunch of hardcore anti-immigration, sometimes often racist, but not always racist, conservatives and right-wingers who said, look, they're saying it in their own academic journals and in their own chat rooms and in their own crazy left-wing outlets that, you know, this is going to be a majority-minority country. And once that happens, white people are going to be, you know, sort of uh, going the way of the dodo and the same thing with conservatism and capitalism and yada, yada, yada. And... That triumphalism, uh, that, that, that demography is destiny, destiny triumphalism on the left, which was always wrong analytically, but the, a bunch of people on the right took it seriously as an aspiration. And that's where a lot of this crazy, stupid white genocide talk has its or, origination, is, is a bunch of irresponsible right-wingers took seriously a bunch of irresponsible left-wingers. Anyway... So that's as close as I get to great replacement theory. But the actual great replacement theory, which comes from this, what, this stupid French book that migrates into American discourse, you know, a while ago, its most virulent and compelling form in the fe on the fever swamp right is this wildly anti-Semitic theory that Jews, or sometimes if you're not supposed to say Jews, or if you don't think it's Jews, you talk about you know, the globalists and the ruling elites or whatever, are trying to replace white people. And the virulent form of this is what inspired the, you know, the synagogue shooter in Pennsylvania. It is a violence-inspiring, crazy, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and even the non-anti-semitic versions are still crazy and i and wildly irresponsible ramaswamy knows this right so when he says on stage the great conspiracy theory is real and it's a basic part of the democratic party platform he knows he's dog whistling to the people who hear it as this crazy anti-semitic thing but then he goes and he gives an interview with dana bash and he says you know he wants to take it's sort of like you know arafat who would talk about peace in English and about wiping out the the Jews in Arabic. It's a Janus move. He gets to take the slings and arrows from the mainstream media and treat them like they're idiots and hysterical and paranoid for thinking that he would mean anything other than a sort of watered-down thing about bringing in immigrant voter kind of stuff. But he knows for a fact by using that phrase and by defending it, that he's endorsing a different meaning entirely. And the sort of trolling way he deals with journalists who ask him about it is part of the fun, right? It's part of the smirking, fecal-consuming grin that these this, of these people who live in this. It's like the people who defended the Pepe frog, which was this, you know, meme that a bunch of anti-Semite schmucks on social media would use. And if you took offense to it, that was the fun of it. It was trolling, right? And they would always keep things sort of ambiguous. That's, you know, the, the putting parentheses around Jewish names. The techniques have a lot of roots in sort of KGB stuff, which pumped a lot of this anti-Semitism 
into Western channels over the last 50 years, you know, you want to be obvious to people who understand what's going on, but provide enough flim-flammery and distracting rhetoric to make fools of people who accuse you of anything. And that's what Ramaswamy is doing. And if, if the Republican Party weren't so enthralled to Trump, the Republican Party would be able to say, just knock this, and it wasn't so weak, it would just say, knock this crap out. This is no good for our party or our country. But you can't, when Trump plays the same games and most of his you know, people play these games, maybe not at the, the level of grotesquerie that Vivek sometimes does, you can't sort of say, we're not going to do that because they have no, the GOP has no power. You know, so like the great replacement theory is the thing that the Tiki Torch pinhead, you know, Nazis in Charlottesville, that's what they were referring to when they were saying the Jews will not replace us. So this idea that there's some star chamber of Jews where we're saying, you know, get me, you know, 500,000 more Guatemalans to replace all of these Irish Catholics, you know, and it's just stupid, but it animates a lot of horrible people and it makes the GOP and the right look like it condones and is, is welcoming of this stuff. And it's just, it's infuriating all for this, this shifty con man, uh, pump and dump billionaire to get a bigger presence, you know, on cable news and on, on social media. I should bring up just one last thing that's been bothering me a lot. I generally think Biden's heart is in the right place on a lot of this Israel stuff. I don't think he's got a lot of courage. Um, I don't think he has enough courage. As I've said for years here, the thing about Biden you have to understand is he was never a centrist. He was a centrist within the two poles of the Democratic Party. And he always triangulated between where the left base of the party was and the right edge of the party was. And since the right edge has atrophied and fallen off to a large extent, it's moved him leftward in all sorts of ways. The bases, the left wing base is bigger. The right wing wing is much smaller. And so since he's got to stay in the center, that's moved him left. And particularly since he wants to run for president again, he's triangulating. Again, I think he thinks he's doing the best he can given where his party is. I think he wants to be supportive of Israel. I think Blinken and Sullivan want to be supportive of Israel. I don't think they're doing a very good job of it in the grand scheme, but I think they think they're doing the best job that's possible given the givens. You know, given that even the friggin' idiot interns are quote unquote signing unsigned letters protesting the president. I mean, a better example of college campuses inculcating this culture of protest as a vital part of a serious education I cannot think of? Why on earth should anyone give a rat's ass that a bunch of interns are upset with Joe Biden? And particularly if they don't have the courage to actually put their letters, their names on something, right? It is 
you know, I got grief for calling this virtue signaling. It is virtue signaling because you know they're all bragging to their friends that they signed it, that they're part of it. And you know, should the moment come when it's finally possible for it to be to their political betterment, they're going to say, oh yeah, I was part of that. I'm sure more interns than the 40 who allegedly were behind it um, in the future say they were behind it if currents go their way and it, or that number might shrink if it turns out to be politically embarrassing for them. But it's just so stupid. Anyway, living in that sort of environment where the New York Times and all the media, they're covering this, they're, they're taking Hamas's words about casualty numbers at face value, um, even though, again, I just want to be on record, I think a lot of Palestinians have died. A lot of innocent Palestinians have died. I do not buy any of the numbers that are cavalierly thrown out there. I mean, I heard Bernie Sanders this morning talking about how it's now been 16,500 or some, some number like that, and over 70% of them have been women and children. I don't believe that number. I don't think it's, I mean, again, the, the share that are women and children keeps rising in all of this, even as Israel keeps killing male members of Hamas. Um, the, the share that are women and uh, called women and children keeps getting bigger. I just don't, I don't believe the numbers. There's no reason to trust Hamas. It is amazing how many people say it is outrageous to take Israel's word for it about rape or even take the some of these women and eyewitnesses word for it about rape without, you know, x-rays and video evidence and all of these kinds of things, which exists, which people have seen. It's just like Israelis don't want to release women being brutally gang raped, right? The number of people are, are just sort of dismissive and like, how dare you use phrases like believe all women against us when it comes to talk about rape, but cavalierly just take Hamas's word for every other thing. I, I, I think that environment gets at the White House. The young staff is taking its cues from social media, from campus, from that ideological blob I talked about. That's the milieu that they came up in. They are well to the left of the president. I think his own grandkids are to the left of him. He's an old guy. Um, he's caught every which way in all of this. And I think he is trying to do the right thing. But I think the predicates that he's laying down, the framing that he lays down for all of this is long-term bad for Israel. And his reluctance, his slow walking to condemn things. I mean, he did condemn, the White House did issue a statement about the, the college presidents, um, but that was mostly because the college presidents did so unbelievably badly. You know, and even Morning Joe's is raining scorn down upon you. You've handled something, you've handled this stuff badly. And they issued a statement, but about the, the, the sort of crystal knocking kind of mob in, Pencil in Philadelphia at the restaurant, that kind of stuff. But the moral outrage is not where I think it should be for a lot of this. Because again, there is just this weird double standard when it comes to threatening violent language aimed at Jews. And that's the last thing I just, because I was talking about the Tiki Torch goobers who I have nothing but contempt for, the Charlottesville neo-Nazis, which if they ever do a remake of Blues Brothers, they're going to have to switch from Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis to Charlottesville Nazis. I hate Charlottesville Nazis. But I just, I think it's worth pointing out, Joe Biden ran for president. He said that the reason he ran for president it was the beginning of his announcement campaign. There are all sorts of articles about how it was central to his thinking was Charlottesville, that this is not America. And I agree entirely with raining scorn and derision and condemnation upon the Groyper neo-Nazi um, schmucks, idiots, villains, whatever label you want to put on them at Charlottesville. 
not my people. I tend to not to want to hang out with people who think it's really funny to talk about how everything would be better if my great-grandparents or grandparents um, had been burnt alive by Nazis. You know, I just are gassed by Nazis. I just sort of, you know, these are not people I want to hang out with. So it's not my team. I've carried a lot of water for conservatism, trying to fight the fever swamp crowd that plays footsie with this crap. It's one of the reasons why I got as sucked into the anti-Trump stuff as I did very early on was the refusal of a lot of people on the right to condemn the alt-right anti-Semitism stuff. So I'm not going to take any guff from anybody about how I'm soft on this stuff on the right. But my God, if you ran for president because of Charlottesville and you cannot muster something like the same outrage about the stuff that's going on on these college campuses, the stuff that's going on on the streets all over the place. The fact that, you know, near me, near where I live, and I think it's Falls Church, uh, they're canceled a menorah lighting because uh, to light a menorah would be to signal that you are on the side of Israel and that would be, or it could be construed as endorsing the killing of Palestinians or some blah, 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 blah stuff. And they said, look, you know, we can do it, but it's got to be in conjunction with a profound and forthright statement about how we need a ceasefire. This kind of stuff is all over the place. I have friend, I have a, f- a dear friend of mine, his, his kid goes to, goes to UPenn and she wants to go to uh, the Hillel for Hanukkah. And the school's like, mm, that might be too dangerous and you know maybe you want to just do it in your dorm room and this kind of thing about don't be jewish in public is spreading all over the place and it is so much more pervasive um less photogenic right those mark the tiki torches and the khakis and the white shirts i mean there was out of the it was perfect for like that bob roberts movie kind of thing much less news ready much less confirming of the the presuppositions that all of the bigotry and all of the threats to democracy come from the right. But this stuff is all over the place and it is sanctioned, condemned, winked at. I mean, it's sanctioned, not condemned, um, winked at, condoned, tolerated, explained away, got to understand the context at a vastly greater scale across the culture, including in the mainstream media. If you actually worry about what Charlottesville in 2019 or whatever that, whenever that was, I guess it was earlier, if you're truly worried about what that represented about this country, you should be more outraged because it's coming from your own side. It's coming from your own coalition. It's coming from your own party. And I'm not saying that the entirety of the Democratic Party, there are lots of people in the Democratic Party, God bless John Fetterman, are condemning a lot of this stuff. Even more are refusing to endorse this stuff. But the degree to which that sort of pose, that smirking pose from those college profe- those college presidents is instantiated throughout vast swaths of the media industrial complex, the higher ed complex, the higher levels of the Democratic Party. This sort of, yeah, it's bad, but we really don't want to talk about it. Or you got to understand where they're coming from. Or you have to understand this didn't start on October 7th. As if this sort of justifies, you know, as Jim Garrity pointed out the other day, the people who were harassing that Goldie's restaurant in, in Philadelphia, Charlie, Charlie, or Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide and, you know, mobbing the place, and threatening people. What their justification for it when they got criticism, the social 
Justice for Palestine group that organized it, they said, well, he's been sending money to support the Zionist entity, you know, or whatever, the Zionist oppressors. He raised like three grand to go towards therapy for kids traumatized in the village where 20% of the residents had been raped, handcuffed, I mean, kidnapped or murdered. Some of these kids, you know, they had parents who were killed or they had friends' parents who were killed or they saw people killed. And he raised a few bucks to help, help pay for therapy for these kids. And this is what justifies having essentially a pogrom light, light um, demonstration outside of a restaurant just because it's, you know, basically just because it's Jewish, but, oh, but, you know, then they were forced to come up with a justification. So this is, this is the thin gruel they come up with. That's demonic. That's evil. And if you don't forthrightly condemn it, it grows, right? There's just this enormous incentive structure for more of this stuff because people aren't being punished for it. If MIT had anything like the courage of its alleged convictions, um, remember there were all these kids who were threatening and harassing students, um, banging on their doors, doing all sorts of terrible crap, right? Um, Calling for killing Jews and whatever. Go watch the press conference with some of those MIT kids. It's amazing. MIT was going to punish these kids for violating policy. They violated policy, even like using megaphones, you know, or disrupting classrooms. It violates policy. And if you're going to say you're pro-free speech, you need to enforce it for all speech. You can't say when the the anti-Jewish people or the anti-Israel people violate the rules, we're going to give them a pass. But anybody else who violates the rules, we're going to enforce the rules. That is exactly what people accuse a Trump of being. If this this old fascist, you know, Caudillo thing of, Favors for my friends, for my enemies, the law, right? That's basically their position on all of this stuff. God, I lost my blink. I'm getting so pissed off again. Oh, yeah. So all MIT needed to do, right? So they were going to punish a bunch of kids for or protesters for doing terrible, indefensible things against policy, right? So it's not just it was bad speech or whatever. It was actually bad behavior, which they wanted to suspend the kids until they found out that that would threaten their visas. I cannot begin to tell you how tiny my violin would be for the kids who lost their visas because they were doing that stuff. Like Guy Denton, you know, the kid who works for me at AI, he's on a visa, right? He really wants to be an American. He, I make jokes about it all the time. It's like he can't screw up because he'll get deported if I fire him, right? It is normally understood that you should be on your best behavior if you're here on a visa, it's not like these kids weren't told this stuff. I am sure there are some kids who got swept up in things and it would be really too bad if they got deported or if they lost their ability to go to MIT because they got ca- caught up in something. But the moral hazard of not punishing these kids, of not suspending them or expelling them in some cases, just means you are in effect subsidizing more of this garbage. And that's the thing, is that they don't subsidize the garbage they disagree with They only subsidize the garbage that they either agree with or they think is legitimate and privileged. And that's what makes the college presidents such unbelievable hypocrites and liars. And that is what is giving permission for all of this anti-Semitism out there. And both the authentic, sincere, I just hate Jews kind, but also like, hey, this is a good first step. Let's go after the Jews and we can do this anti-white stuff down the road. It's grotesque. It's indefensible. It's illiberal. And I'm getting really tired of listening to people talk about the constant threats to our democracy and to liberalism and being either 
truly blind to what's going on on their own side or dismissive or apologetic for. I'm going to stay this both-siders guy for as long as it's required. And if it annoys people who are fans of mine from the old days on the right, or if it annoys the newfound fans I've made on the left, I don't give a rat's ass. I just think it's just such a moral requirement to be clear-eyed about this stuff and not to get carried away, you know, but to like be honest about it and, and tell the truth regardless, truth as you see it, regardless of, of what it does to your coalition. God, I don't care about my coalition. Anyway, all right, I'm done. I know I went super long being overly caffeinated late on a Thursday. And um, thanks for listening. Please, if you can, subscribe to The Dispatch. Get a gift subscription for someone for The Dispatch. It's important. I think it's important. I think we're doing great work. I think it's worth the price and then some, and we'd appreciate it. So, and today is the first night of Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate, as John Pedowitz might say, keep the candle burning. God bless.